this time, I invite you to turn into your Bibles to find the scripture passage we will consider this morning from Isaiah chapter 13. Find that on page 1078 of our Pew Bibles. Before I read the passage, I would like to give an introduction uh, and kind of set the stage a bit as where we are in this passage. And first, thinking of this, that by way of introduction here, have you ever been swimming in the ocean, perhaps at the beach, in thought as you're swimming out there? Maybe you're a strong swimmer like myself, and you think, I've got this, I'm in control, I have uh, a good bearing of where I'm at, when all of a sudden you find yourself swept away by the current, pulling you a bit out into sea and down the coast. Well, in a sense, that was me this week with this passage (laughs) before us in Isaiah. We've come to a turning point in the book of Isaiah, We've seen how God has dealt with Israel, his people, and also also Judah in the south for their sins and addressed them directly. He told them about the coming Assyrian invasion, which would be God's way of disciplining his people, teaching them to return to him, to rely on him all the more in trust instead of the false hopes of idols and false alliances with other nations. And so we heard about how God was going to as well send his Messiah in time, the great light of hope, to redeem and restore his people and all of creation with them. And that's kind of where we left off last week. And this morning we turn that corner, and before us here in Isaiah is sort of a desert, like the vast Sahara dunes, right? You can just picture it before us. From chapter 13, where we are now, all the way till chapter 27 of Isaiah, we find a series of oracles from God against the nations. So he first dealt with Israel, his people, and now he's turning against the nations to speak to them. And to be honest, I'm still trying to figure out how we are going to tackle and approach these chapters. Uh, But I want us to give our hearts attention to them, right? Uh, But at the same time, I don't want us to die of thirst as we make our way through the sand dunes of God's judgment against the nations. So I want to make sure that we stop at each kind of oasis along the way uh, to take refreshment in the hope of God's promises. With that said, we need to see that there is great value for us here in these oracles against the nations. God wants to do something with our hearts by way of these oracles. He wants to fortify the lowly and forewarn the lofty. We have to remember that even as he's directing these oracles against the nations, that Isaiah's primary audience is God's own covenant people, his lowly church, his small remnant people in the midst of the world. And those are the ones that he expects to read and listen to these oracles. And so, to all followers of God, the God of Israel and his promises, in a sense, God is saying this. 
You might be pressed down by evil men in this world, but I will raise you up on the last day, and I will surely avenge your enemies by giving them the full justice that they deserve. I hear your cries. I hear your cries for deliverance and for justice. Don't worry. The day of the Lord is fast approaching. Hold fast to my promises. And so we hear that message, and we will hear that. But God is also warning, warning through these oracles. The warning is this, and it comes to us again as well. Do not join in. Do not join in with the proud and the presumptuous of this world. Don't desire to sit in the lofty places of power in the world. The arrogant will eventually trip and fall over their own pride in the end. And God is saying, I will punish the world for their selfish pursuits. Don't be conformed to the world and its ways. Rather, consecrate yourself to God by faith and in obedience to him. Stay with his covenant people. Remember, as Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You see, we need to hear both the comfort and the challenge of these passages. We need to live also in light of the final day of the Lord, which is coming, instead of only living for the moment of each day. Living each moment, rather, in light of that final day day of judgment to come. And that's what these oracles do for us. They really fix our heart on the promise and the threat of God's coming day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the day of resurrection, the last day towards which all of human history is headed and pointed towards. So with that said, let's read the text Since we have a large text before us, 45 verses, instead of trying to read our way through it all at once, I'd like to read it in two parts. And so we'll first read chapter 13, verses 1 to 22, and then we'll pause to reflect. Hear now the word of the Lord. An oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop, Shout to them, beckon to them, to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my holy ones. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms, like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and to destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. 
I will make men scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Like a hunted gazelle, like a sheep without shepherd, each will return to his own people, each will flee to his native land. Whoever is captured will be thrust through, and all who are caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives ravished. See, I will stir up against them the Medes, who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants. They will, look with, they will not look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God, like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flock there. But desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill their houses. There the owls will dwell, and there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in strongholds. Jackals in her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand, and her days will not be prolonged. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this first oracle we hear at the very beginning is directed against Babylon, which was a contemporary superpower of Isaiah's day. And in verse 17 of this passage, we hear that God would in time send the Medes, another empire, against Babylon. And he did just that in the year 539 B.C. God, therefore, in this passage, was confronting a particular ancient society and civilization here, Babylon. But this oracle against Babylon has a broader reach than just one particular ancient empire. We see that in verse 11, where God says, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. So we see that in Isaiah's day, even in his day, Babylon had already become a kind of code name for every self-exalting civilization that lifts its head up in defiance against God with pride against the Creator. The root word for Babylon stretches all the way back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 when humanity set out to make a name for themselves by building up to the sky in their pride and their arrogance. And so Babylon is related to that historic event. In this common theme that we see humans trying to make a name for themselves in pride and arrogance against God. And that's why in Revelation 18, the Apostle John hears an angel declare, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And again there, Babylon is a code name for each and every kingdom of the world or society that becomes so self-absorbed and inflated with pride that it neglects God and does not give him praise or honor and does not follow his ways. And in John's own day, Babylon the Great was manifested in Rome, the Roman Empire, and God was predicting that Rome would eventually fall for pride goes before the fall. 
When the Roman Empire did in fact fall in the year 410 AD, Augustine of Hippo diagnosed the central weakness that led to its demise. How it crumbled and fell was because of the love of self at the center of that city, the city of man, ruled by love of self, or we could say the pride. He says this, pride is the beginning of sin. And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? And this is undue exaltation when the soul abandons God to whom it ought to cleave as its end and becomes a kind of end to itself. See, it is the pride inside of humanity, inside of each of us, that eventually leads to the great evils that are done by human civilization. And through this text, like this one, we see that God is not negligent. He doesn't ignore the great evils that are done by humans around the world. You know, many wrongly conclude that God must not care about the evil in the world because he is allowing it to happen. He's permitting it. But that is not the case. Just because he permits such evil to take place in the world does not mean he is complacent or indifferent towards it. We find here in this text clearly that he is greatly angered by such evil. By these public announcements that we just heard and will hear, we hear God declaring his absolute supremacy over all the nations of the world. The righteous king of creation is saying to each and every geopolitical power of today as well, that I see all the evil that you have done the greed for lust, the gluttony for power, the genocides of hate, I see it all. And I will soon give you what you deserve. My day of retribution is fast approaching. Don't say I didn't warn you. This public announcement has been published openly for the past 2,700 years. My day of justice is drawing near. You see, in these passages, we find that God will humble those who lift themselves up, exalting themselves in order to disadvantage it and lead to the demise of others. God will humble them. Now, this truth might be hard for us to understand in our current culture and context, and therefore it's helpful to listen to what others, other Christians have thought and uh, their insight to this, those especially who have suffered much in the world. And one such author, theologian, is Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian who himself had seen much suffering among his people, and he's given a great deal of thought to the importance of the day of judgment. He says this, that it's easy for us, sitting in our pleasant living rooms in the Western world, to come up with high-minded theories of nonviolence. Our villages have not been burned. Our brothers have not had their throats slit. And our sisters have not been assaulted. So in the face of such brutality that actually exists in the world today, Wolf asks this question, what can save us from becoming a vengeful people? What can keep us from lashing out and repaying evil with evil? And the answer is this, he says, belief in divine vengeance. The promise that God will bring full justice in the end keeps us from lifting up the sword now. 
in striking our brothers, striking our enemies. Wolf says the certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. And that's where we are in the middle of it. We can lay down our arms, lay down our anger, knowing that God will get full justice in the end. So how does this apply to us? Uh, Author and commentator on this passage, Ray Ortland, gives a helpful answer. He says this, We should oppose all injustice in the world because God does. But what if we try and lose? What if wrong stomps on us? What can stabilize us when injustice gloats in triumph over us? If we don't have a just God to trust in, we will have no logical reason to become to not become violent ourselves. It is Isaiah's vision of God's final justice that moderates our anger and frustration right now. God has scheduled on the human calendar a day of final intervention when he will repay all the dirty deals and broken promises and each backstabbing of history with a justice clear enough to satisfy no one less than himself. So again, we find that belief in God's just judgment at the end of history allows us to live in the midst of madness above the hatred, right? And above that, that anger and animosity, above that in a place of love for our enemies. And this is what Paul's argument is in Romans 12, which we read earlier in the law, where he says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone if it is possible As it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay it, says the Lord. On the contrary, so in light of God's vengeance, which is coming, this is how we ought to act. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The only way that ethic of rising above the anger and the madness to love our enemies makes sense is if God will have final justice in the end. And that's the promise that we hear in this text. The promise and threat of God's just judgment against every proud Babylonian gives us pause. May it stay our hearts from seeking revenge, knowing that God will repay each person in the end. God will give each their due punishment for their crimes. For example, you can think of this in human history, and this is just one case. Think of someone like Adolf Hitler, who orchestrated the brutal murder and torture of millions of people. And then how did he end his life? committed suicide in a bunker. How is that just? In a sense, Hitler got off easily, right, in comparison to the great evil that he himself committed. Where is justice in an event like that? Our hearts cry out, where is justice? Well, Isaiah gives us the answer to our longing hearts. Justice is found at the end. The day of the Lord is near. 
So based on that future outpouring of God's wrath against the evil of humanity, we realize that God cares a great deal about the evil that is in the world. He is far angrier at the injustice, the violence, and the destruction that humans commit and do than we ourselves can comprehend or realize. His holy purity is greatly offended by our proud haughtiness. And in Romans 2, Paul says this, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So we, the, the fact that God is being patient right now, not lashing out in judgment, does not mean that he doesn't care. His patience and his long-suffering towards evil is meant to lead us towards repentance, to lead us to turn away from our sins, to pull us away from Babylon and its ways, to instead join God in his ways of repentance and faith. And Paul goes on to, uh, to say this, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the, on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you presume upon his mercy and his kindness without repenting, you are storing up wrath for yourself. He will render to each according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So know this, that if you do not belong to Jesus by faith, there is a date and a time when God's mercy towards you will come to a screeching stop and all blessings will be stripped away. God will pull out the complete record of all your sins, all of your wicked thoughts, all of your evil deeds, every hurtful word that you have said. Your heart will be laid totally bare before him, naked and afraid, before the king of righteousness. And he will prove that his wrath stored up against you is 100% justified. 100% justified. On that day, none will accuse God of being too severe or too judgmental, which is often the case. None will accuse him of that. Once the full records are declared and all evil is exposed, all will recognize that his ways are just and true, and all will realize that he has been exceedingly merciful and patient for not intervening prior to punish us in our sins. So hear the warning this morning. Don't join Babylon the mighty, for she shall surely fall. But is this day of the Lord only a display of exacting judgment? Is it only a threat? Well, let's read the next portion of our scripture passage this morning to find out part two here in chapter 14, verses 1 to 27. The word of the Lord. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Aliens will join them and unite with the house of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And the house of Israel will possess the nations. 
As men servants and maid servants in the Lord's land, they will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. On the day the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, how the oppressor has come to an end, how his fury has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. All the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Even the pine trees and the cedars of Lebanon exult over you and say, now that you have been laid low, no woodsman comes to cut us down. The grave below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. All those who were leaders in the world, it makes them rise from their thrones. All those who were kings over the nations, they will all respond. They will say to you, ha, you have become weak as we are. You have become like us. All your pomp has brought you down to the grave. Along with the noise of your harps, maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. How, have, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit, those who see you stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? All the kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out of your tomb like a wretched branch. You are covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stones of the pit, like a corpse trampled underfoot, you will not join them in burial, for you have destroyed your land and killed your people. The offspring of the wicked will never be mentioned again. Prepare a place to slaughter his sons for the sins of their forefathers. They are not to rise to inherit the land and cover the earth with their cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord Almighty. I will cut off from Babylon her name and survivors, her offspring and descendants, declares the Lord. I will turn her into a place for owls and into swampland. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely, as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. I will crush the Assyrian in my hand. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over the nations, all the nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? The word of the Lord. Well, again, loved ones, in this passage, throughout it, we hear God saying to us again, I am the Lord Almighty, that will punish all the proud and presumptuous people who poison the planet with pitiless power. I will dispatch the proud into the pit of perennial despair for their crimes against creation and for their high treason against their creator. That is what God is declaring. 
But also, as we read in the beginning of chapter 14, if you are one of those who are humbled to the ground by your sin and look to God, look to Jesus by faith, as Israel and Jacob, the remnant, look to God, the God of the promises, we hear that he will have compassion on us. He will forgive us all our sins. And in the end, he will exalt us above all the nations. In other words, we find throughout this passage, the central truth of the scripture is that God will humble the exalted and exalt the humble. And here at the min- in the middle of the oracle against Babylon the mighty, God has sent a word of comfort for his people, Israel the lowly. He said there, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Compassion, his love for his people. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. In this passage, we see that God also intends to comfort his people who are afflicted in this world. If you are afflicted by your own sins, And if you despise the misery of sin in this world, then take heart. Take heart that God's anger will put an end to all sin. He will right all wrong in the end. God's justice will be raised over all the earth and all who take refuge in his gracious promises that he made prior to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His promises of grace, unconditional grace. If you trust in him, you too will stand with him in triumph over evil. Now, for those of us who are aware of our own sin and misery, the pride that still exists in our heart, well, they can take comfort in, in this promise of God, this promise of God to save his people from their sins and the punishment that they deserve as well. This was true in Isaiah's day. He's already laid out for us in the earlier chapters all the sins of Israel and Judah. They deserve punishment too, but God is having compassion on his people because of his promises of old. And so as it was true in Isaiah's day, it's still true for us. They trusted that God would be true to his promises of grace. They trusted that God would in some way atone for all of their sins and restore them again. The main difference between them, Isaiah, and the remnant who followed him And us is that now we know how God's promises all come together in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we call on Jesus' name, which is above every other name. As the Apostle Peter said of Jesus in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only in Jesus' name is there salvation. This means that we can approach this text Passages like this, knowing that if we belong to Jesus by faith, that God is for us, not against us. But be warned as well that if you refuse Jesus, if you reject Jesus and his promise of grace to sinners like you, be warned that God is still against you. Even as he implores you to come and join him to take refuge in him and his promises. So how does your heart react to this news, these oracles this morning? Do you tremble in fear of God's judgment? Or do you find yourself rejoicing in God's compassion and his grace and his justice as well?
So Christian, if you believe in Jesus, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Remember that God has already paid in full for the punishment of all your sins by his own suffering and death on the cross. If you trust in Jesus, despite all of the evil of your thoughts, your deeds, all you've said and done, the judge has already pulled out, poured out his full wrath and justice against you on his son and the cross of Calvary. God already got an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth when Christ shed his blood and was nailed to the tree for sinners like you and me. Therefore, the curse, Christian, has been removed from you. The judge of all the earth is the same one who offered himself for sinners like you, who died for the ungodly while we were still sinners. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, and asks this great question and gives a great answer, what comfort, what comfort is it to us that Christ shall come to judge the living and the dead? What comfort is, is there for us in that? And here's the answer. That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. That is a great comfort that we have, that when we look to the judge as Christians, we look to the same one who offered himself on the cross for us to atone for all our sins. In that way, we see how God showed his great compassion and mercy to his people and came through on his promises of grace. And so, the close here, humble yourself before the Lord Almighty who will come to judge the living and the dead. Repent from your sins. Depart from the proud ways of Babylon the mighty who shall surely fall for pride goes before the fall. Instead, trust in God's gracious promise to save sinners like you and me from his coming wrath. He will surely lift up his lowly people, those who've been humbled, by his grace, humbled by their own sins, God will raise you up if you look to Christ by faith. So look to him, him who is our judge, but also the same one who offered himself in our place on that tree to atone for all our sins. May we live in the light of the coming day of the Lord, loving our enemies while we wait for his vengeance, for he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we admit and confess that we often do not live in light of your day of judgment, your day of wonders, the day of resurrection, that we are so easily caught up in our own lives in each passing moment, in the trials and difficulties of our own day, that we do not see that point on the horizon and strive for it, longing to meet you, our God, with the comfort of your grace in Christ. Lord, we, we ask that you would instill and impress upon our hearts, fix it there uh, in, in the proper position, the coming day of the Lord, which is drawing near. 
And may your promise of vengeance in the end, uh, may that give us pause to stay our hand of revenge and instead rise above the hatred that we see around us to love our enemies as Christ loved us while we were still enemies, while we we were still sinners in the ungodly. And Lord, may you give us comfort. Comfort, please, all your people who are trusting and looking to you for your grace and your forgiveness, which is found in no other name but in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Loved ones.